Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'm happy to say that the following interview is brought to you with permission by the excellent podcast, Who Makes Sense? A History of Capitalism. I hope that you enjoy this episode, and I hope that you visit Who Makes Sense. On Who Makes Sense, we argue that the history of capitalism is intimately tied with the history of labor. During our live show last month, I noted that for capitalism, the most important commodity is the labor power of the individual. But we don't live our lives solely as homogenous labor power, nor does our employer view us in this way. Instead, the history of labor and capitalism is a thoroughly racial, gendered, and sexualized history. Today, we explore this theme through the lens of male flight attendants. We speak with Phil T. Meyer about the shifts and the changes in the airline industry across the 20th century. Phil steers us through this history and reveals the importance and the difficulty of braiding together race, gender, and sexuality in a study of labor and capitalism. You are listening to Who Makes Sense, a History of Capitalism podcast. I'm Betsy Beasley. And I'm David Stein. Who Makes Sense is a monthly podcast devoted to bringing you engaging stories that explain how capitalism has changed over time. We interview historians and social and cultural critics about capitalism's past, highlighting the political and the economic changes that have created the present. Hi, Phil. Can you tell our listeners a little about yourself and your book? My name is Phil T. Meyer, and I'm Associate Professor of History at Philadelphia University. My book, uh, Plain Queer, Labor, Sexuality, and AIDS in the History of Male Flight Attendants, explores what I would consider the kind of the undulations of homophobia in uh, a workplace, uh, looking at male flight attendants who stood out as a, a, a gay career and the ways that they've been treated by employers and by the law. So the book starts with the dawn of commercial aviation in the United States, especially the flight, the first flight with a flight attendant on it, which was a male flight attendant who flew for Pan Am on one of their routes from Miami down to Havana. It traces then the history of this career all the way up to the post-September 11th moment, when air travel has become far more mundane in a lot of ways. And it looks at flight attendants, examining who was able to hold this job, men versus women, white versus non-white, and uh, gay versus straight, uh, through the years to, to see what sorts of changes have occurred over the course of that 80 years of, of commercial flight in the United States. 
Can you walk us through the historical arc for your book, starting in the 1920s? Uh Uh-huh. So uh, I I use a chronological order for the book. It starts with the 1920s and 1930s in a time when there were a a lot of men flying in, in this profession, and then move on to the 1950s, which I think is a really important moment because like what we know from other histories of gender in and sexuality in the United States, the 1950s stands out as a, a very kind of regimented, traditionalized moment. So that men by the, the late 50s were effectively no longer hired for this position, and it became almost virtually an entirely female workplace. One key thing that changed this is uh, the focus of another chapter on the late 1960s when a man in Miami sued using the 1964 Civil Rights Act and its protections against sex discrimination to become a flight attendant. The 1964 Civil Rights Act for flight attendants became a really important moment and it was in a rather unexpected way and that is that a man who couldn't find a job as a flight attendant with Pan Am actually used that law to to claim sex discrimination where and this was one of the the first but not the only cases where uh, men used the new law to uh, to to claim sex discrimination and in this case the, the man who who pursued the case against Pan Am actually won and forced a federal court's decision that forced all US airlines to start hiring men by 1971. I move on from that moment in the book through the 1970s into a couple chapters uh, that focus on the AIDS crisis of the 1980s, which is really this kind of crystallizing moment where LGBT, especially gay men, in the career of flight attendant um, really sort of became visible in an unfortunate way for the first time as many of their colleagues were, were falling sick. And so uh, a whole set of, of workplace uh, equity issues arise during the AIDS crisis that affects the, the flight attendant core in a really profound way and also becomes a bit of a media moment where Randy Schultz, who is a famous gay journalist out in San Francisco and, and chronicled the AIDS crisis in a very authoritative book on the crisis and the band played on that was released in the late 80s. Randy actually sort of vilifies a flight attendant whom he calls Patient Zero and names as an Air Canada flight attendant named Gaetan Dugas, makes flight attendants, especially male flight attendants, sort of the poster children, if you will, of the excesses of gay culture of the 1970s and 80s and the people who brought AIDS allegedly to North America. So that's another chapter or two of the book. In the aftermath of the AIDS crisis is where I go with my final chapters that looks at the 1990s and the 2000s, where airlines really make an effort to, uh, for the first time, sort of embrace that idea that LGBT customers can actually be a profitable core of their business and therefore make serious attempts to embrace their, their, the diversity within their flight attendant core, especially accentuating for the first time that many flight attendants are gay and sort of using them as PR 
tools of sorts to uh, attract the LGBT dollar, these presumed high-income consumers who, who are less tied to families and they're mo- therefore more prone to travel. Overall, the, books, the book looks at very different moments in this career and very different moments in aviation, very different moments in the law, very different moments in the ways that even labor unions were, were willing to countenance gender diversity and sexuality diversity. You open the book by telling us about researching in the Pan Am archives and coming across a small folder marked Stewards. Can you tell our listeners what was in that folder and how it helped bring about this book? Sure. So uh, really, I I was sort of fumbling around for what was then a dissertation topic and is now uh, a book, um, a topic for my book. Uh, I knew I wanted to do something on aviation, and I found myself in the Pan Am archives down at the University of Miami and um, was looking through various sorts of files and and knew that uh, one thing I wanted to pursue was this question of of sexuality diversity in the flight attendant corps. So I looked through a set of files on flight attendants there, and it was a fairly big box, really, marked uh, stewardesses. And uh, I started to kind of flip my way through the various folders and came upon one that sort of stuck out, stuck out because it was the only one labeled stewards. So I opened it up, and um, there wasn't too much there, but it was mostly clippings from um, Pan Am's own magazine that they would have in um, the seat pockets to, for customers to read uh, while they were on the aircraft. So a, f- a few kind of PR stories that talked about really interesting things that I'd never heard of. And most importantly was this court case from the late 1960s where the airline admits in its PR uh, files that it wasn't hiring men and until uh, one man, Celio Diaz, um, a resident of Miami, um, applied for a job and was turned down on the basis of his sex. And it, it proceeded to sort of explain how... That court case uh, forced not only Pan Am, but every airline in the United States to to change its hiring practices. So there was, you know, a series of of small little articles, mostly written in the 1970s, about how there was a more diverse flight attendant corps with Pan Am than had been the case. And it seemed like the, the articles were making customers more aware as to why there was this change, whether they were happy with it or not. And I thought, well, this is a really fascinating element. I want to find out more about it. So I sort of took this file with me into the offices of the head archivist down at the University of Miami at the time. And I asked him um, where there were more papers about this, uh, this court case and about this whole issue of, of uh, male flight attendants. And uh, he sort of looked up and said, uh, kind of with a smile on his face, he said, uh, well, I think you found everything that exists because we've got everything out there. And uh, he said, uh, if there's not much there, maybe that's the the clue that you're looking for. Maybe there's a story behind this that you could actually flesh out in other ways. And so that was kind of the crystallizing moment where it was more the absence of anything rather than the presence of too much that made me realize that there was a history here that, that was worth being told. 
Something our listeners may or may not be aware of is the movement of women flight attendants in the 1970s to achieve greater degrees of dignity in the workplace, especially the right not to simply be seen as sex objects. And I wonder how the 1971 case that you're describing intersects with that movement in the sense that it's about a different way of imagining that labor. Yeah. So definitely in the aftermath of the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, and then a year later, the opening of the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission, um, it seems like the people who wrote that bill had a really strong focus on race in their minds. And they envisioned that the the people who would come to the EEOC would be primarily African-Americans who had incidences of, of workplace discrimination. But something surprised the EEOC employees right away in, in July of 1965, and that is that there were so many stewardesses who had claims that they wanted filed immediately. And these were claims of sex discrimination, not race discrimination. And at the time, I mean, in, we're talking about the mid-1960s, there was a whole assortment of ways that women in this job were being discriminated against. Rules against being pregnant, rules against being over a certain weight, age restrictions where some airlines were firing women when they turned 32 or 35 years of age. Marriage restrictions on some airlines as well, so that when you got married, you got fired. The, the, the things that women in this industry had to put up with were beyond the pale in terms of discrimination. And so a whole set of court cases, EEOC uh, cases, labor union grievances were filed in the course of the, the late 1960s to get the airlines to treat their female employees on a par with their male employees. And uh, there's no question that the main thrust of the, the legal work that was being done at the time was to address these issues that affected 96, 97 percent of the flight attendant corps at the time, which was women. But alongside these these claims were a few claims by men who couldn't even enter the career. Um, and that's where the Celio Diaz case starts as well. Not with as much support, I would say, from the labor unions themselves, uh, nor with as much support initially from sympathetic feminists in the EEOC. But over time, even the attempts on the part of stewardesses to gain equality became closely linked with this case from Celio Diaz and, their, and his efforts to get at least a foot in the door on an equal basis for men. Right. And it seems that must necessarily also reshape the idea of what the flight attendant's labor is. Is a flight attendant there mainly to make male passengers comfortable through an idea of sexual availability of female flight attendant? Or is it a job category where that is not the defining characteristic? Right. It, absolutely. And if you look at the final decision of the U.S. Court of Appeals in the Celio Diaz case, feminists were ecstatic and, and flight attendant labor unions were ecstatic with the language because what the courts decided 
is that the essential business of an airline is to get passengers safely from point A to point B. To us, that seems, you know, second nature. I mean, what we look for in a flight is to get safely from point A to point B. And if it's on time, even better, right? But what the airlines were arguing is that they were actually a, a service industry who's, who were catering to customers' desires for service in, in the process of getting people from point A to point B. And therefore, their choice of women over men, their choice of young over old, unmarried over married, was all part of their core business. But that's what the courts decided against. They said, no, essentially the business is about safety. And this really helped flight attendants and flight attendant labor unions in the 1970s to push a whole set of reforms and really sort of revolutionized the field away from a service-based and sex-based industry, let's be frank, to an industry that's built as as a core of safety professional. So this was a crucial break in freeing the the women and the men in the flight attendant field from being seen as sex objects first. Could we go back a little bit and dig into the second and third chapters of your book? These detail the decline of the male steward after World War II, noting that by 1958, Pan Am and Eastern refused to hire men. Can you explain for our listeners what occurred in the lead up to this decision and what it has to do with the gendered labor market of the Cold War, as well as the role of sexism and homophobia? There's a lot to cover about the ways that sexuality and gender were being expressed in the workforce in the 1950s. The analysis has to start with World War II which is this sort of defining moment. And World War II changed a couple things. First, the gender norms for Americans changed in a way that the, the, the veterans of, of, of the war, who were men almost exclusively, are suddenly kind of put in these roles as brave protectors and providers. And it sort of butches up manhood in America as, as the Cold War takes root in the United States. It it sort of puts women in this dualistic way of, of seeing them first as, as more important providers, even outside the home, but at the same time doing it with a, a more traditional femininity than, than we've seen uh, in the 1930s, especially in the, in the course of the Great Depression. And then certainly if you think of the Rosie the Riveter imagery and the experience of many, many women in World War II taking what were notionally male jobs and doing them exceedingly well. So gender roles were changing into a kind of a butched up manhood and a a femmed up womanhood. This sort of change in gender roles was cast onto a system where work in America was changing. You know, the the women who were employed in factory jobs, etc. not all of them were expelled as we now know, but uh, certainly a good many of them left those workplaces to return to, especially if we're talking about middle-class white women, to return to that ideal of of being the suburban housewife or to, to, especially if they were young, to notionally feminine careers in nursing or school teaching, etc., which, again, if you were middle-class and white, you often left those careers then as you married or 
or aged, not always, but often. This had real implications for the flight attendant corps. On the one hand, there was an impulse to hire a lot of men, especially veterans after World War II. And so there were in the early 50s, late 40s, real attempts by airlines, not just Eastern and Pan Am, who had historically hired men, but other airlines too. Braniff tried this, Delta tried this to hire more men because men, according to the mythos of, of the day, deserved work because of their status as veterans. But that didn't last. What ended up happening and taking firmer root as the 1950s went on was making the, the flight attendant profession more equivalent to nursing and more equivalent to things like bank tellers, etc., where it was a heavily feminized profession and especially if you think of, of bank telling, where women are being hired for their looks and their youth, as well as their skill set. So by the 1950s, the airlines are realizing that this is the new norm in air travel. And those choices have to do a bit with the regulated market of aviation in the 1950s. Uh, what you had is that you only had two or three airlines competing on each route because they were regulated by the federal government. And they had to charge basically the same prices, which meant that the only way that they could, well, I mean, there are a variety of ways they could have differentiated their product. But <clears throat> the one that they chose was to hire the most attractive, the most doting stewardess corps as possible to create a loyal client base amongst the well-paid businessmen who were the primary air travelers in the 1950s. And so there became a real competition amongst the airlines to have the youngest, prettiest flight attendant corps as possible. Can you tell our listeners a little about how you went about researching the book? Sources were the big issue as to whether this book could be written. There is a real Darth of information about flight attendants overall. If you go to the core places where other scholars have been, and here I would single out Kathleen Berry's awesome work, Femininity in Flight, that came out around 2007, I believe. Kathleen was able to look at labor union archives of the flight attendant labor unions and find a real great set of documents that testified to the struggles of women to overcome their pigeonhole as the young, pretty, underpaid stewardesses. But I, I didn't necessarily have those same advantages because even when you went, even when I went to those same labor union archives, the issues of men are harder to find in those places, and the issues tied to homosexuality are nearly impossible to find, except when in certain circumstances, like the AIDS crisis, when workers were being fired, forced onto medical leave because of their HIV status and because of their, their AIDS status, honestly. I mean, uh, this is the early 80s when the, the distinction between being HIV positive and, and having AIDS didn't really exist. So I could find some documents relating to those sorts of issues that are tied in with homosexuality, at least historically have been tied in with homosexuality. But honestly, a lot of my work had to be done through oral histories. And so uh, 
I had to find a way to sort of uncover contacts with men who who flew, and ideally men who flew long ago. And honestly, the the first contact that I I was able to get was from that same archivist at the University of Miami who said, you know, I have a friend who used to fly. <laughs> and he put me in touch with someone who was living out in California. And before I knew it, through that contact, I had a whole community of, of former flight attendants and really just great people to interview and talk with without them sitting down and being extremely patient with me, uh, there's no way I could have gotten the material to write this book. Right. So the question of archives can become quite difficult. This is uh, one of the great struggles of historians of sexuality is that sexuality is not a protected class the way that race has been in the United States historically and that, that gender is historically. And it wasn't a way that, that people segregated themselves the way that or were forced into segregated places right which is more than than likely the the case in american history so we don't have an archive to turn to for queer work and we don't really have a, an archive to turn to for queer entrepreneurship the way that we do for women or people of color right and that makes our job difficult because we have to read between the archival lines just to, to find queerness, or we have to, to rely heavily on oral history to, to find people who did have workplace experience and were, were able to find ways where their queerness was either tolerated or was the basis of discrimination. Before we had a, a, a legal regime that even continents that homosexuality might be some sort of protected class, most people who were fired or discriminated against for being queer, they just went home. They didn't go to the courts. They didn't go to their labor union. So we're, we're stuck, I think, in terms of, of how vast our archive can be. Historians of sexuality have often looked at archives focusing on nightlife or activism or medical records. Can you tell our listeners why exploring sexuality in the workplace is particularly important? If those are the three main strands of um, where historians of sexuality have gone over the last 25 years, that means that people who don't do the nightlife, people who aren't activists, and people who don't end up in psychiatrist's office or, or doctor's offices don't get studied. And one thing all of us, almost all of us, end up doing in life is working. That seemed to be a void that needed to be filled for queer historians, is looking at the workplace as a place where queer identity could be either nurtured or antagonized, and where communities could be founded by finding like-minded fellow employees at work. The flight attendant profession is is a great place to go for this because there is such a high percentage of especially men working in the field who have, have found each other and have found ways to build vibrant friendship networks and work networks and sex networks through their work. But I think there's a lot more to be done in terms of looking at teachers through the last century or so in the United States looking at nursing networks, 
a whole set of, of workplaces kind of open up as, as places where, where we can also go to find more out about the queer experience that hasn't been studied so far. So much of the history of capitalism operates through the production and reproduction of racial and gendered labor power. One thing your book opens up is a deeper analysis of this history in terms of how sexuality of workers was tremendously important. Can you elaborate on why understanding sexuality alongside race and gender is a significant thread for analyzing histories of capitalism and labor? For example, you write that, quote, queer careers arose out of America's Jim Crow past. If you kind of go back to who was able to do service work in Jim Crow America and Jane Crow America, if you will. Generally speaking, we're talking about a few different types of people. If you were female, of course, regardless of of race, you could occupy a servile role and not have too many complications being read as belonging in that job. And of course, if you were an African-American male, or a Filipino male, or a Latino male, you could also fill these service-related roles and be read as not troublesome in terms of belonging in that job. Of course, the reason that you fit in that job is because you weren't treated as a man, but you were treated as boy, if you will, right? So there was a real diminution of, of that work if men were filling it. So one thing we have to be clear about with the flight attendant corps is that it was all white until the Civil Rights Act of 1964, save for some Latino men who were hired by Pan Am to work their Latin American routes. But we're talking about an all-white, effectively an all-white field. Um, So... If you were a man in the 1930s or a man in the 1950s, a white man taking this role that society expected to be filled by a woman or by a person, a male of color, then you've got problems and you start to get read as a less than male, someone who's suspect as being effeminate in terms of the social roles that you're undertaking. And and really that's where the confusion arises, that these men get read by fellow workers, get read by customers as queer. Um, and it's interesting that the reality is somewhat equivalent in that many uh, white gay men were actually seeking out this work and actually building networks of people who could help other gay men get hired in these jobs and build a team within the flight attendant corps at certain airlines that was supportive of each other as gay men. So really, yes, the the history of of these workers is very much tied in with with Jim Crow and and Jane Crow in that Uh, If you're going to be a white man serving in a profession that's so service-oriented and so about looking good and, and serving male customers, then you're going to be read as queer. You do have another important example of how race, gender, and sexuality intersect in the workplace. 
And what I'm thinking about is how you close the book by discussing the way that airlines, almost as a marketing strategy, are extending same-sex benefits and using the presumed sexuality of flight attendants to reach out to a gay market. Could you tell us a little about your points about neoliberalism and how we should not consider these choices by employers as the culmination of sexuality rights in the workplace? Right. So neoliberalism has sort of a fetish going on, and and they have for the last 25 years with queer consumers, right? And and when they picture queer consumers, let's be honest, they're talking about white and predominantly male customers, people who have, through their other ways of privilege, gender and race, um, found ways to be successful and, and good consumers. So what's happened with flight attendants as employees and what's happened with, with gays as travelers is that we've found more equality in corporate America than we have in political America, in the in the legal realm and the legislative realm and, and the judicial realm. You know, before <laughs> the Supreme Court a couple of weeks ago bestowed marriage rights across the country, companies like Avis or American Airlines or other travel companies were already giving same-sex rights to couples with the same address or, you know, couples, couples who self-identified as, as being partners. And this started, you know, in the 1990s. It's kind of a, a great story in that there's definitely positive elements to it in, in that for queer employees of the airlines starting in the 90s and definitely by the 2000s, they too were benefiting from this corporate effort to reach the, the gay dollar, right? So they were being told by marketing companies that you can't just give same-sex benefits to your customers. You also have to show a coherent attempt to do this to your employees as well because that gay customer also wants to see that you're treating your gay employees well. And therefore, things like uh, same-sex health benefits became standard in the aviation industry for flight attendants and, you know, non-flight attendants alike who work for airlines like United. They became standard by the early 2000s, well before uh, states or even many municipalities got around to to extending these benefits. They also had other sorts of, of privileges like what was known as buddy passes where flight attendants or other airline employees could designate not just their spouses and not just their family members, but could choose one person or a couple of people to enjoy reduced cost flight privileges around the country, around the world. This was very much one of the first same-sex benefits that corporate corporate America devised for their employees. The, the history of buddy passes goes all the way back to the early 1980s. So what we've seen over the last 30 years is that LGBT employees and LGBT customers have often gotten a lot of benefits bestowed on them by companies, even outpacing what we've been able to to get from, from the government. But there's a dark side to this, right? And that is that all of this buy-in is tied to the myth and for some, but only for some, the reality that we have money to spend in, and that we're 
valued customers for our amount of disposable income, especially via V straight people who are trying to raise kids. So, and that's the dark side, right? I talk at the end of my book about uh, Steven Slater, who was that jet blue flight attendant who flew off the edge and quit his job by deploying the emergency exit slide and sliding down out of the plane onto the tarmac and running home, right? And in some ways he becomes a sort of gay icon and, um, uh, this, for a brief moment, has a lot of press coverage as sort of the guy who who yelled out, take this job and shove it, you know, and, and was sort of a cult hero. But Slater's experiences are, are very indicative of what queer equality looks like in a neoliberal workplace. On the one hand, he has domestic partner benefits. His, his domestic partner actually was able to use Stephen's buddy passes to to fly from New York to L.A. once or twice a month to visit his sick mother. So he had complete equality in terms of his sexual identity. But like every flight attendant flying after September 11th, Stephen's wages were ridiculously low, and his workplace security was such that he had to work for a few different airlines over the course of his 10-year career. And he was getting paid more when he started as a flight attendant in the 1990s than he was in 2010 after 10 or 12 years of experience in the field. All those things kind of speak to a larger vulnerability that all of us have in the neoliberal workplace. Uh, even if we're getting more and more LGBT-based rights, we're losing our financial security and we're also losing that potential ladder into a middle-class living as working people. If you liked our show, make sure to check us out at whomakesensepodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash who makes sense and follow us on Twitter at who makes sense and let us know if there are topics that you want to know more about. You can learn more about Phil's work at our website, who makes sense podcast.com. Who makes sense is supported by the Yale public humanities program and the university of Southern California's department of American studies and ethnicity. Join us next month for more histories of capitalism.